We're going to be in, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, looking back on chapter 5, but we'll be reading from chapter 6. Um, this, this past week, uh, once again in, in our country, we have to deal with the fact uh, that kids have gone to school and not come home, uh, come home again. Uh, and I, I don't know how many times we're going to keep saying this, uh, how many times we're going to keep talking about this. It's, um, it's too many. And, uh, and unfortunately, it feels inevitable that we'll just be here again. Um, and we, we can't, us, you and I, we can't do a whole lot to, um, to be at every single school in the country. We don't have that, that ability. Um, we, have, we have schools here around us. And those are schools that God has entrusted to us uh, to care for and to love and to serve um, and you know if if you if you want to really pour yourself into providing national change through legislation or whatever, please go for it. I support you. I love you. Um, but most of us aren't going to do that. Maybe some of us in the room want to go that way, but and maybe some of the some will actually do it. But the rest of us in the room need to to accept kind of the responsibility of being here in this place, in this time. And there are ways that you and I can love and serve our schools practically, um, effectively, so that we are to the best of our ability making peace in our valley and helping to transform schools so that they are more and more a place not where kids go in fear or in anger or in isolation, but they are a place where they can go to be loved and to be served. And we're, we're fortunate to um, meet in a school, um, and we take that very seriously, and we want to take it more and more seriously that we don't just want to be here on a Sunday morning, but we want to be here for the Monday through Friday as well. Um, uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I came here for the last homework diner program that was here that uh, the United Way has been trying to establish. Owen Middle School as a community school, so the community would be invested and plugged in here. And um, they have these homework diners. They had these homework designers, uh, diners. They're over now uh, for the semester. But it's a place where people can come get a meal. Their kids can get help tutoring. And we, we helped with two of them out of, I don't know, 12. And uh, they, the guy who leads the United Way programming here, he emailed me and said, hey, could you come? This is our last one of the semester. We would just love if somebody was here from your church just to see, send off. And so I, I came that evening, and um, as soon as I walked in here, a middle school teacher just came up and hugged me 
And so I'm just so glad to see you, and I'm so glad that your church is here. Um, not just for the homework diners, but for the smallest things that we've done to serve this school. A couple of people organize a, clo- a clothing closet here, and apparently this is like one of the biggest things that's ever happened, it seems like. They're so excited about it. We've had people come and clean up in the courtyard once, maybe twice. We have given, in my opinion, for what it looks like, so little here. And yet the school is so grateful and responsive. And, you know, I, I, I'm not getting any hugs from any middle school students, which is fine. I don't know what I would do with that. Um, but the teachers are, the principal is really appreciative. And, and we only want to be here more. We want to do more than what we've done. We have people who go to, uh, the primary school, and who have lunch with kids, these lunch buddies. We have five people that go and do this. We have people who are involved in the PTO at Black Mountain Primary. And we can see evidence in what they're doing, that they are making real connection with, with students, with teachers, with principals, administration. And it's, it matters. It makes a difference. We as a church, we're going to continue to focus on the middle school going into next school year and pouring out here. My encouragement to you as you watch the news is one, don't watch the news that much. Um, Two, uh, do not let stories like we've seen this week uh, become all that you think on and meditate on. And then you go on social media and get angry or sad, and then that's it. That, that is not a useful and helpful response. My suggestion is your chief way forward is this place and this valley. This school, Black Mountain Primary, Black Mountain Elementary, if your kids go to school there, if you go to W.D. Williams like my kids do, Serve your school. Love everybody that you can there. Do it in the name of Jesus and under the power and authority of Jesus. We may not be able to change the news way over there, but God willing, we can change the news here in our place, in our time. And this is open to anybody, whether you go to ACA or your homeschool or, or anything like that, I would, I would encourage you, find one of these public schools. Pour out your life there. Give of yourself. Even, even if your margin is 5% of your time, that's all you really have to give. That's it. That's fine. Be faithful with what you can give and give it. That's great. We have all kinds of people that you can talk to about this. Um, Talk to Amy Berry, uh, who has been involved at the, in the PTO life and in the life of Black Mountain Primary. Um, ask Nathan Burkett how you can serve him as he is leading and serving in, with Young Life and Wildlife in these schools. Ask him how you can serve him or what you can do to help uh, make wildlife and young life better as they reach out to kids in these schools. Talk to Jeremiah or a small group leader about how you can get plugged in with service here at the middle school. We have, we have options for you. Please 
do not respond to tragedy by wallowing and then forgetting. We can't, we can't do that. Uh, I do want to pray for our country and our schools. I want to pray for our schools in Buncombe County and Black Mountain and Swannanoa. And as I do, um, I'm going to also pray for the, the many families that we have who are camp families, who are loving kids in a different way, in a different angle. They're, we're about to, they're about to disappear. Uh, summer camp is starting and we want them who are serving kids that are coming here from all over the country to also be sustained graciously through an exhausting work as they love on kids all summer. So would you pray with me as we just pray for this whole spectrum of people? Lord Jesus, We know that you, you are the God who stoops down low and says, let the little children come to me. That you love our kids, that you love children, that you love big kids and small kids. And so God, our heartbreak is only only a small fraction of yours. God, we pray that we would faithfully pray our prayers of lament to you. That we might, might look to you as the psalmist does and say, how long, O oh Lord? How long? And God, we, we pray that we would faithfully respond to the brokenness of our world as ambassadors of Jesus' kingdom, where there is life and peace. God, we pray that in this valley, in Black Mountain and Swannanoa, that our families would be agents of the reconciliation available between God and man. God, we pray that we would be agents of yours in Black Mountain Primary and Black Mountain Elementary and Owen Middle and Owen High and W.D. Williams. God, that we would serve and love people in this school in the name of Jesus. That we would be making your peace in this world. God, we pray for all of those who are serving and loving on kids in this valley, staff, administration, for the volunteers in our church and other churches, for ministries that are supporting these schools and, and serving these schools. God, we pray that you would sustain them and graciously empower them to do more than they're able in and of themselves. God, we pray for all of the people who are in our church who are involved in camp life, who have kids from outside of this valley coming here to this valley. God, we pray that you would bless them with peace and rest in their bodies, energy in their souls so they can march through another summer of pouring themselves out. God, help us to be a responsive people who do not just watch the tragedies of this world march by on our screens, 
but would instead march out into the world, into dark places, carrying the light and love of Jesus for the healing of the nations. God, be with us this morning. I pray that our hearts would be soft, pliable. We'd be open to You. We pray that Your Word would come and shape us and change us, correct us and call us. We thank You for Your goodness to Your church, Jesus. We trust that we'll see evidence of it yet again here this morning. We love you. Amen. We are in a series in, uh, in 2 Samuel, First and 2 Samuel, we're in 2 Samuel now. Um, and, you know, I, I was, as I went and planned out the rest of the series, I just have a spreadsheet dates on it, and I'm just putting whatever comes next, trying to break down the, the text as manageably as possible. And uh, I, I put this passage down on the list with no intention at all, uh, no planning other than that it was the next line down, and this is where we were. Uh, but what we're talking about today, in light of Pentecost, makes it seem like I planned it. And let me just assure you, I did not. My, my suggestion to you is that God providentially brought us to this text uh, on Pentecost. Uh, David, as at this point in, in 2 Samuel 6, he is, um, he's become the king, officially. He's been in process. And in 2 Samuel 5, he's finally anointed as king over all of Israel, not just Judah, not just his tribe, but over all of the kingdom. He's been established, and he establishes Jerusalem as the capital of the, the nation for the first time. And what he wants to do is he wants to draw these strands together and make it not just the political capital of Israel, but he also wants to make it the religious capital of Israel. He wants to move the tabernacle to Jerusalem so that both the throne of David and, as it were, the throne of God would be in the same city. And so to do that, he needs to bring the center of Israel's tabernacle to Jerusalem. He needs to get the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant is at the middle of tabernacle worship. It'll ultimately be in the middle of temple worship. The whole thing is built around the Ark of the Covenant. From the Ark of the Covenant, God speaks to Israel, as it were. It has within it the Ten Commandments. It has the staff from Aaron to represent the priesthood that God has blessed. It has a um, little remnant of, of manna God provided for His people in the wilderness. It's this holy, holy thing. And David needs to bring it to Jerusalem so that he can build, reestablish the tabernacle around it. And we're not going to read this whole chapter. The first part, and we're going to talk about this, is uh, the story of this man named Uzzah. Uzzah was one of the people who was involved in moving the Ark of the Covenant where it's supposed to go in Jerusalem. And Uzzah, unfortunately, has, has a tragic story. The people had loaded the Ark of the Covenant on an, an ox cart and as they were going down the road, you know, we, we don't have perfectly smooth roads here with paved roads. 
they're going down rocky pathways, basically. And they hit a divot, and it tips, starts to wobble, and Uzzah almost instinctively reaches out to stop this most sacred object from falling over. And so he grabs the Ark of the Covenant to stop it. And then he's struck dead. Because you are not allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And so the first bit that we're going to read is here starting at verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who had bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. We're going to jump down to verse 20. David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today. Sarcastically, she's saying this. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. We have uh, two people in the story that misunderstand the nature of God. And there are disastrous consequences for their misunderstanding. The first is Uzzah, dead Uzzah. You know, the, the, the clear ramifications of his misunderstanding are laid out as they lay his body out. This passage, as you read it, it can feel over the top, over the line, like across the line. Like, I mean, this seems like a bit of an overreaction. The thing is falling out of the cart. Uzzah's is not like throwing water balloons at it. He's, he's not like hiding it behind a dumpster. He's, he's trying to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling and hitting the ground. It seems over the top to say, well, the law says don't touch it and just strike him dead for that. But Uzzah and all those who are with him, their misunderstanding begins before the thing starts to tip. 
Because the people of Israel have been told how to move the Ark of the Covenant. It is constructed in a way that is conducive to only moving it this way. The Ark of the Covenant has on it these these loops on the side through which you are meant to stick these long rods. And you carry the Ark of the Covenant four men on their shoulders carrying the Ark of the Covenant wherever it is meant to go. God, in giving the law, in giving the description of the tabernacle, did not say movement of tabernacle, dash, dealer's choice, free play. You decide. He says, move the tabernacle like this. Move the Ark of the Covenant like this. Don't ever touch it. Don't touch it. And we don't, we don't know what the conversation was like before this. I imagine, I'm pretty sure it's much easier to move the thing on an ox cart. If they had been carrying the Ark of the Covenant as they were instructed to, hitting a divot probably does not end with uh, the thing about to fall. So one, if they, if they had done what they were supposed to do, they never would have been in the situation they were supposed to, that they found themselves in. And, and I don't know if they had forgotten the instruction. This happens, Israel forgets things all the time. We get to the book of 2 Kings and they literally forgot to do Passover for generations. This is a forgetting people. I don't know if they forgot the law or if they just chose to sidestep it. But either one, either the forgetting or the choosing to do otherwise, it it involves a misunderstanding about the nature of the holiness of God. God is not the box. This Ark of the Covenant, it's, it's basically a super nice box. And God is not the box. Boxes you can manipulate and control, you can fill and unpack as you like. And God is not the box, nor does He live inside of the box. God is the uncaged, ferociously holy God of the universe. And you don't approach Him as if He is a thing, as if He is an equal, as if He is a pet. And somewhere along this decision-making process, before the moment that Uzzah reaches out and touches the box, it was not probably just his fault, but multiple people's, multiple people's fault. Somebody, everybody decided that they can control and manipulate God and treat Him as if He is a thing or just like another person, as if He's the box. This is a profound and dangerous misunderstanding. God is in His holiness, wild and untamed. He is not unpredictable. He told them what would happen if they did this thing. He's not unpredictable. 
but he is fearsomely himself and will not be treated as if he is not. If you and I treat God as if he is an object, as if he is a thing, as if he is just like us, Scripture goes to great lengths, this story including, to tell us we are in dangerous territory. David himself, his response says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. That is the right response. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He was reminded that God will not be manipulated. And notice his response as they properly move the the Ark of the Covenant later. Six steps and then an offering. Right recognition of who they are dealing with and dealing with him on the terms that he has dictated. If you do not see God for who he really is, you are in trouble. But he's not the only one that does not properly understand what God is like. David is ecstatic. He is so, so excited to locate the tabernacle of Israel in Jerusalem, in this city that God has given him. He is excited. We'll see later next week. He has grand plans for what to do with the ark, to do with the tabernacle. He wants to blow it up and and make it a temple and not just this movable tent thing. But he is excited that Israel will be called to worship God rightly. He is dancing before the Ark of the Covenant so much so that he is shedding layers. He is just wildly spinning around and doing whatever dancing like that looks like. I, like side to side swaying is about the limit of my dancing. And I don't know how one gets to dancing your clothes off, but that is where he's at. And there, there's no, no little side note in the text that said, and David was an idiot. That's not what it says. It's this sort of approving tale of David's joy before the Lord. And one of his wives, Michal, is watching him, this daughter of Saul. And it says she despised him in her heart. She despised the joy that he demonstrated. She despised the way that he was dishonored. Because truly a man of his stature should not be in such a position. He's a respectable man. He commands the respect literally of the nation. And he dances around like a child. And she despises him. And her her contempt with which she views her husband, it ends in barrenness for the rest of her life. She is a a fruitless woman. That's the, the comparison being drawn. That's the curse that David speaks over her. You compare me to these female servants. They will honor me for the rest of their life and you will be dishonored. Michal misunderstands not the nature of her husband, but she misunderstands the nature of God. 
God is not just fearsomely holy. God is also somehow surprisingly the most delightful person you will ever meet. It is not right that David is just afraid of God because if all he did was fear God in the way that he feared Him, he would have an, an incomplete view of who God is. Michal has, has the other side of an incomplete view. She does not see that the God of Israel is worthy of such undignified dancing. He should provoke in you this kind of delighted response, this sort of joyful, ecstatic response to the coming of the real and true King of Israel, that should make you want to dance. God is not just totally other than you and bigger than you and much scarier than you. God is way better than you. And so when you meet Him for who He really is, you aren't just amazed and terrified by His bigness. You are caught up and swept away by His goodness. So when David is seeing this, this glimpse, this vista of God's goodness, and he can't help but ecstatically respond, he is rightly seeing God for who He really is, and his wife is not. All she is seeing is again this manipulable, manipulable, that word, thing, this box that you can use for respect, that you can use to make your life make sense, but that would not ever sweep you off your feet in delight. Uzzah and Michal, they misunderstand on both counts what is the nature of God. David both fears the Lord and dances with joy before Him. And God is not, for David, kept in the box. Hundreds of years later, there is a prophet named Ezekiel. And he is a prophet of the Lord for Israel, but he is not in Israel. Because by the time Ezekiel comes around, things have gone really bad. Ezekiel's in Babylon with lots of other people in exile. And God gives him a lot of crazy visions, but one of the visions he sees is the people of Israel in the temple again failing to see and understand God for who He is. They set up worship to God right alongside this worship of other idols. They neither fear God nor delight in Him. And then Ezekiel sees the glory of God lift up over the temple and leave. The glory of God, the presence of God, it leaves the temple in Jerusalem as this profound speaking of judgment on Israel for their failure to see and to love God for who He really is. And Ezekiel sees a bunch of other things and he prophesies a bunch of other things. And then he sees into the future and he sees this day down in the future where the glory of God returns. 
this strange vision of, of a throne with wheels and flashing of light and cracking of thunder. The glory of God comes back and restores Israel. And that day when it comes, he's told, God will not just be with his people, but God will do something different and profound. He will help the people see him for who he really is. And he will put his spirit inside of them. And Ezekiel then has this other crazy vision. He goes up and he looks down in this valley. And it's just full of bones. These bleached and dry bones. And he's told to prophesy to these bones. And this thing happens where this wind comes. This, what he is told is the breath of God, the Spirit of God comes and reanimates these bleached bones and makes them into new and living people. And Ezekiel is told that one day the glory of God will come back to be with His people and the Spirit of God will animate and dwell inside all of His people so that never again might they misunderstand His nature or be separated Him by any kind of distance. David's son, we are told in the Gospel of Luke, comes into the story of Israel. And the only way that Luke can describe Jesus' activity at times is to just say that Jesus is delighting and rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus comes back to the people of Israel telling to them and revealing to them the nature of the God that they have misunderstood and failed to follow for so long. He will tell them in one sermon that their hearts are far further from God than they ever could have grasped, that their hearts are cold and and, and distant, and even if they keep themselves from the exterior forms of sin, their heart is just as sinful as any murderer or adulterer on the planet that they are corrupted by sin. And yet Jesus will also tell them and all that He says and that He does that God is far more approachable and good than they ever hoped. That He is the one that doesn't just find the holiest ones and encamp on a mountain with them, but he, instead He hangs out with people who are common and rejected People who are lowly and overlooked, he collects them and brings them close and he calls them his friends. And what happens in Jesus' story, this son of David, is that the glory of God will return to Jerusalem. But the surprising revelation of the glory of God, this demonstration, this fullest teaching of what God is like that they have most misunderstood is that it will be Jesus crucified on a cross. And in the cross, they will see these two things that they have misunderstood woven together, perfectly demonstrating that God is both fearsomely holy and He will confront and judge sin. But He is so generous and delightful and kind to his people that delight is the only appropriate response. 
His friends will barely believe what they've seen. They will not be expecting him to die or to rise again. And then their draws will drop and hit the floor when they watch him float up into the sky. But then they will wait in Jerusalem, this city, this city of David. And they will wait like David's son told them to. And then everything that Ezekiel prophesied will come true. Because the thing that they hear in that room on Pentecost is this sound that sounds like wind. And the Spirit of God, the breath of God, will move over them, around them, through them as Jesus breathes on His people. And these people who were one thing before, who they were terrified and cowardly and unsure of themselves, will suddenly be reanimated and changed to something that they were not before. And their response is nothing short of undignified. All of Jerusalem will come and look at what's going on in this room full of people and they will say, those people are hammered. They have been drinking way too much wine. And there will be no apology from these people just like there was no apology from David. They will not stand up and say, guys, you're right, we'll turn it down. We've gotten too loud, we've gotten too crazy. They will say, this is what happens when the King of Israel comes and the day of the Lord comes and the Spirit of God comes. This is the appropriate response to this fearsomely holy, unbelievably delightful God who comes to be with His people They'll point back to all of the Scriptures, both in the Joel passage that we read and the Psalms that David wrote, and they will see, see, this is what God has been doing this whole time. It is not just that God would bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem one day, and we all have to circle around and spin around and delight in it, but instead He will move the Ark of the Covenant to the inside of His people. The veil is ripped open at the death of Jesus so that all of His people will understand they don't have to crawl their way up to Jerusalem anymore and find their way into the center of the temple, but instead the center of the temple is being put in the center of each and every one of His people. And this morning, you are invited to this this moment, this Pentecost Sunday, and to re-examine the nature of the God that you may or may not believe in. My suggestion to you is that it is not in our nature that we are born with to see God rightly as both fearsomely holy and unbelievably delightful. You are probably in here like me this morning and have either treated God like some containable, manageable box to be moved or you have treated Him as this icon of fearfulness. And you this morning are either moving God around in the furniture of your life and treating Him as something that He is not or you are afraid of Him. And you cannot imagine dancing in front of Him in delight. But people of God, you were meant because of the work of Jesus to see this real and full picture of what God is really like. That you would see Him 
in his, all of his terrifying holiness and given to you in all of his overwhelming goodness. The nature of the church throughout all of our history has necessitated a people who dance like David dance. If God is only the thing to you that makes this final logical puzzle piece of your life, and He is never allowed to dictate the terms of life with you, and He only does things that make people look at you and say, you know what, that's a good, respectable guy, then you are, I would suggest, not seeing and experiencing all of the bigness of who God is. I, I don't know what that will look like for you. I'm not here to diagram and parse out every ramification of that for you. What I am saying to you this Pentecost Sunday, what I think that the Scriptures are saying in both 2 Samuel 6 and in Acts 2 is that God is not happy or pleased to be caged in your life. And He will rip open the bars of that cage. And if you will not deal with Him on those terms... Scripture lays out for you the either side of this refusing to see Him. There is a kind of death that happens when you will not acknowledge God for who He is. And I think there is, for so many people, this fruitlessness when God never becomes this person that you delight in. You were meant to fully and ecstatically delight in God. You know, our, one of our most important documents of, of our particular stream of Christianity, our catechism, starts with this question. What is the chief end of man? What is the reason that people were made? The chief end of man, our answer is that we were meant to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were meant to see that God is glorious. And we were meant to see that God is delightful. You may be stuck on either side of this road in a ditch where you are fearful or cold-hearted. My, my encouragement to you this morning is not to buck up and be better. That is not the gospel answer. If you find yourself veering on either side of treating God like a fern in your apartment or this unbelievably stodgy, undelightful person, the cross is standing in front of you. The Holy Spirit comes to the people of God not so that we can just have woohoo weird experiences or do crazy things or anything like that. The Holy Spirit comes so that you and I can see Jesus high and lifted up again and again and again and again. The Godhead, the third person of the Trinity, indwells His people so that you and I will be brought to see how glorious and delightful Jesus is. And if you say, my heart has grown cold, my heart has grown tired, I cannot believe that God is like this, 
you do not have to repair yourself. What you have to do is open your hands, open your mouth, and let God breathe on you again. The people of God in Acts, they experienced this massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this crazy experience in Acts 2. And it takes them four chapters of the Bible to say, you know what? Need it again because this was scary and now all these people want to kill us. And you know what God doesn't say? Sorry. You got, you got your shot. This is it. This is all there was. We've, we've run out. We're out of the Holy Spirit. You know what happens when they say that they need more to experience this again? God pours out His Holy Spirit in almost an exact replica of what happens in Acts 2. If you are here this morning and you have lost sight of the glorious God who will not be contained or caged, or you have stopped believing that God would ever make you dance in this kind of wild delight, this morning, the tabernacle is not far from you. The Ark of the Covenant is brought near to you. The the God of the cross stands in front of you that the Holy Spirit would come upon you and would fill you again and again, bottom to top, over and over again with the infinite, unceasing life of God for the people of God for all eternity. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And if you are here this morning and you are neither glorifying God nor enjoying Him, you are not too far for Him. You are not too far off. And you don't need to make yourself better for Him. The people who didn't glorify God, who weren't enjoying Him, those were the people that Jesus came for again and again and again. So if you have reached the thousand time where you say, I'm just dry, I'm cold, I am dead hearted, I don't have anything for you today, and I can't get anything from God because it's too many times. It is not too many times. The God of the Bible still comes after His people again and again, relentlessly, eternally, infinitely, pouring out His life for the people of God. Will you then respond? If you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. If you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Maybe the hardness of your heart has wounded you so it feels like you cannot even extend your hands. You are so tired. You are so tired of this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. If you are trapped in a dry place, And you cannot muster one ounce of joy. You've been called to worship Him this morning. And let Him love you. He is so good. He is so gentle and kind with you. You do not need to be afraid of Him even if you can't be excited enough to see Him. 
He is good. And He wants to do good to you. This is the good news of God for the people of God. Would you let me pray for you? Lord Jesus, you are great and you are glorious on this Pentecost Sunday. You are so glorious and good and delightful, God. God, we confess to you that we have idolized control over our lives. We have idolized respectability more than we have sought you. You have given us yourself. And we have turned away and said, once is enough. But you have offered to us an eternal kind and quality of life that we will not reach the bottom of. Father, I pray that you will help us to confess how we have fallen into the sins of Uzzah and Michal, failing to see you for who you really are. We confess, God, that our, that our hearts are given to distrusting you. And we thank you that you stand before us today anyway, patiently presenting yourself again and again. Father, some of us have been waiting in Jerusalem for a long time, waiting for something to happen, waiting for something to change, failing to see that you were there with them. Father, I pray that you will present yourself this morning as good to them and for them. And Father, I pray for those of us who have gone off managing our lives, making them manageable, making us manageable and presentable people. And I pray, God, that you would call us back to the center of delight. We do not love as we ought to love. And though your love is good, we choose other things. Help us to confess our sin to you, God and also to run to you. Lord Jesus, there is no one like you. You are great and good. We are slow to believe. Help our unbelief, Lord Jesus. And pour out your Spirit on us again and again. Amen.